This week on WealthTrack, meaningful investing. Veteran strategist and fund manager Bob Dahl discusses his new focus on investing based on values and faith in addition to traditional metrics. The main difference is what you're including and excluding. ESG largely takes things out. Yes, we take things out, but we also emphasize things. Companies that promote justice, promote family values, uh, take good care of their employees, their community, their environment. Uh, those kinds of companies, um, we think, deserve an extra kiss. Crossmark Global Investments' Bob Dahl will join us this week on Consuelo Mack Wealth Track. Funding provided by Clearbridge Investments, Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, First Eagle Investment Management, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, and Strategus Asset Management. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. The demand for socially responsible investment strategies is growing, and the cash flowing into them shows it. Exchange-traded funds with ESG characteristics, ESG of course stands for environmental, social, and governance, have attracted the lion's share of equity money in recent years. As this chart shared with us by Strategus shows, assets flowing into ESG ETFs have exploded since 2019 to over $4 trillion, whereas money going into general all-equity ETFs has remained flat. In true follow-the-money form, Wall Street has taken notice. There are now many different kinds of socially responsible investment products to choose from. One you don't hear a lot about is values and faith-based investing, a niche that has been around for decades through separately managed accounts and a few mutual funds. Well, this week's guests just might change their low profile. He is widely followed market strategist and successful investor Robert Dahl, Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager at Crossmark Global Investments, which he just joined this year. Dahl has held similar positions at major investment firms, including Nuveen and Merrill Lynch. He is famous for his frequently accurate list of 10 annual predictions, forecasting market, economic, interest rate, and political trends, among others. A brave forecasting exercise for anyone. He is also a longtime money manager. He has run three different large cap strategies for years, large cap core, value, and growth. He is running similar strategies and funds at Crossmark, one set using traditional fundamental and quantitative analysis, and another set which uses Crossmark's values-based screening. Now that combination puts him in the sweet spot of the market over the past decade, large company stocks and socially responsible investing. But his with a twist. I asked Dahl to explain what values and faith-based investing means. Crossmark is a faith-based firm that makes that is, manufactures and distributes values-based products. Everyone has their own values. Ours, because we're faith-based, are basically biblical in origin. What is God for? We emphasize those companies where everything checks out. And vice versa, what is God not for? What is God against? So we screen those companies out. It's that simple. We recognize, however, everybody has their own way of looking at it, so we not only manufacture mutual funds with the values that we've put in place, but we have separately managed accounts where we can encompass someone else's values. Bob, that is really heavy <laughs> for the investing world. Yeah, I guess you're look, right. Look, I was, I was brought up as a Catholic, and it was only the, you know, the Pope who could interpret for yeah. me you know, what God is for or not for. So, 
Uh, so, try a simpler way? Okay. Yeah. No, no, no. So, oh. so how do you judge, uh, you said biblical terms, so how do, how do you judge, you know, what God is for or God is not for? I mean, just looking, when you're looking at a company. It's not simple. I mean, let's back up. What we start with are standard ways of looking at businesses. One of my friends said, have you given up everything you've done for the last 40 years? I said, what do you mean? You used to talk about good companies good products and services, smart managements, good cash flow, reasonable valuations. That's the starting point. We don't violate that in any way, shape, or form. But beyond that, we exclude some things and we give an extra kiss, if you will, to other companies. That's what the values part that brings into, along with the secular way of looking at things. So I know you, you, you do both sets, right? You do the, the, the traditional fundamental quantitative analysis where you're you know picking in your case large cap stocks and but but then then there's another set of uh, portfolios right that you're applying these faith-based screens to or these values-based screens to correct Consuelo and to complicate it some things in between in other words we'll manage money the traditional way the way I've done all my career at the other extreme if you will we'll manage our steward funds is what they're called and then if somebody comes to us and says, you know, the only thing I'm against is companies that begin with letter H. Will you screen those out? We can do that. So you're doing custom portfolios as well. Yes. The cross-mark screens that are values-based and, and faith-based. Um, so give us an example of, of what that screen asks, what characteristics does it look for? What characteristics would it exclude that you maybe wouldn't necessarily in your traditional approach? Good example would be tobacco stocks. It's pretty evident from the science that tobacco is not so good for you. And so if it's an addictive product that can end up in serious illness or death, we screen that out. Tobacco is a perfect example. And yet that would still make it into your large cap, I don't know, value portfolio? If someone came to us and said, I have no values, nobody quite say that, but if they said, just invest in anything if you think it's a good company, we can do that. That's the exception. Over two thirds of the money man we manage is faith-based in some way, shape or form. Again, you've been managing large cap portfolios for decades and you do three different styles, the core and the growth and the value. And, but one of them actually had an energy stock in it and it was Kinder Morgan. So I was interested, and that, that was in a screened portfolio. So I was interested how an energy company made it into uh, a screened portfolio. Ah, it depends what you're screening in and out. Okay. <clears throat> From our point of view, um, energy carefully managed is a good thing. We need energy to live. Now, I understand there's some environmentalists who might say, no, 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 no fossil fuels in my portfolio. We have some of those as well. It would not have Kinder Morgan in it. And speaking of energy, uh, because when, when we've been looking at the entire, you know, the ESG, social responsible investing space, which has attracted a lot of assets, I mean, far more than regular equity funds, for instance, most of those funds exclude energy stocks and material stocks, which have been huge laggards over the last decade. However, this year, the top performing S&P 500 sector is energy and materials have done extremely well too. So I'm thinking kind of from a fiduciary responsibility, 
you know, am I willing to exclude those knowing that had I included them, that in fact, uh, that, that, you know, my, I'm going to get better returns from my clients? There's no question there'll be stocks that you miss, good ones and bad ones when you screen certain things out. What we ha now have is a history of enough years where we have a statistical significant study that says values-based investing, the returns you give up nothing. Yes, in some years we'll do better, in some years we'll do worse, but over time, the returns have been almost identical. We do not have ESG portfolios. Is there a lot of overlap? Uh, companies that are socially responsible, there are parts of that they're very much of, uh, appeal to us in terms of a value sense. But ESG to the letter of the law is not exactly what we do. What would you say the main difference is? Uh, the main difference is what you're including and excluding. ESG largely takes things out. Yes, we take things out, but we also emphasize things. Companies that promote justice, promote family values, uh, take good care of their employees, their community, their environment. Uh, those kinds of companies um, we think deserve an extra kiss, assuming they meet the bill for all the traditional things we talked about earlier. Can you give me real life examples of a, you know, a, a company that, right, that, you, that you're investing in that maybe um, others wouldn't, even if they have ESG type of... Well, they might or might not, but Target okay. is a company that okay. meets all the traditional uh, screens and uh, uh, fundamental analysis, but it also has a record of uh, promoting within, from within, of having good board governance, the kinds of things that you would say, yeah, this is a good company. They're taking good care of their business and all the uh, constituencies in which they, which they come in contact with. Family values, you said at the beginning of the interview. What does that mean? What kind of companies have good family values? Yeah, co companies we think that uh, have policies whereby they care about the rest of the family. So again, I'll be extreme. Um, uh, my wife has a baby and I'm not allowed to take an hour off. That's not good family values. Conversely, um, uh, you know, <laughs> when we had our kids, if I got a few days, that was good. But now the policy for a lot of companies is the guy, the male, gets six weeks off. Well, you know, there's some, there's some check marks about they really care about the family, don't they? Mm -hmm. So can you give me an example of a company that is particularly family value friendly? Yes, uh, I'll come back to the target example, but there are a lot in, in retail space. You know, companies that tend to have more employees tend to be more aware of these sorts of things as opposed to companies that might be very capital intensive that not necessarily don't care about their employees but they think about those things less because they're really focused on uh, getting a good return on the capital investment and the people investment is uh, less important if you will what are you telling clients um, as far as uh, you know your view on the markets we first observed that stocks have doubled from the pandemic low. So a lot of good things have happened in portfolios. And what happened, of course, was we shut the economy down, but then the authorities, fiscal and monetary, came along and said, here's some money. And the reopening trade and the extra money created an unbelievable whoosh upward for our economy. And that lasted for some time. But we're now at a point where that is still the case. The tailwinds are still strong, but they're not as strong. 
but deceleration, the market's not crazy about that. Inflation, no. that wasn't around uh, you know, a year ago. Now all of a sudden we have this debate, is inflation transitory? Is it supply uh, shortage related or is core inflation coming back? Uh, we are concerned that there's some core inflation keep creeping into the system. Uh, so it's not a perfect environment, so there is many flies in the ointment. So I think the stock market has moved from kind of straight up to sidewise choppy. And uh, we, we could wake up a few months from now and not be too far from where we are. So what's less important now is how much I have in. Instead, what do I own? What do I not own in my portfolios? One of your in-depth pieces uh, recently was in, uh, was about inflation. I guess it was entitled Inflation, Yes or No. And one of the things that you said is that the Fed and investors are too complacent about inflation. Why do you think that? Let's start with the Fed. The Fed is trying to convince everybody, including themselves and the bond market, that inflation is transitory and therefore it's going to pass from the scene. Well, they've been saying that for some time. Now they're hedging a little bit. Uh, so I think uh, the concern we should have that investors and markets perhaps are not focused on enough is, I'll make it simple, the era of zero to two percent inflation that you and I and everybody else enjoyed for over a decade is probably over. And we're entering a period now where inflation is going to be like two to four percent. That's not high inflation, but it's certainly different uh, a ballpark than zero to two. What impact uh, is that going to have on, on the markets, on both the stock and bond markets? And are we starting to see any, uh, you know, any reaction in the markets really yet? Well, starting with the bond market, let's look at the 10-year Treasury. It was uh, 50 basis points, a half of 1% at the pandemic low, uh, crept on up to, um, in, in the spring, uh, 175 and then went back to below 120 and now is about 155. So I think we're witnessing two steps higher, one step lower in interest rates. And if inflation does have some legs, that interest rate will slowly but surely move higher. And the impact on the stock market is, of course, valuation compression. Higher inflation, higher interest rates usually means the P.E. ratio of the stock market has to fall. Any other megatrends that you're focused on? Well, uh, on the positive side, we still have an incredible tailwind from parts of productivity, technology, parts of healthcare, even some other sectors. And you can't dismiss that. And the United States and the world needs that because population growth in the developed world is not too far from zero and in some countries turn negative. So we have to have some productivity. Thankfully, we have that. That's an important trend. There's another trend Had we talked um, uh, a few years ago as we did, trade was moving up as the world was globalizing with the trend interrupted a little bit with COVID, but it's still in place. More nationalism, more protectionism. Countries are uh, looking inside their own borders. And so those things have, uh, have slowed down the growth to some degree. That's another important trend. How does that uh basically influence the investment decisions you're making. Right. So, so it's obviously an economic issue, but of course it's, still, it's a political issue as well. Right. Uh, some people would argue globalization was bad because we exported so many jobs to other parts of the world. And, and, and there's a, that side of it does make some sense. I think the decision about uh, investing inside or outside the United States is uh, an important way influenced by these sorts of things. 
In other words, multinational growth has not been as big as it used to be because the domestic part of the business is the one that's had the most growth. So that's changing, right? Is, is that? It is, it is changing. I mean, you can uh -huh. still invest that way, but, uh, you know, if you want to invest overseas, you really should go overseas. Don't, don't pick the best multinationals. And I would say from a cyclical standpoint, believing that economic growth around the world is improving uh, and the pendulum will switch from the U.S. being the center to much of the rest of the world as time goes by, so I think investors who've spent the last decade owning only U.S. stocks, stand up, take a bow, you've done very well, but now do some diversification. You've been in the sweet spot, uh, number one, for certainly the last decade in owning large cap companies and mainly U.S.-based companies as well. So give us uh, a sense of, of how you view large cap companies now, valuations, for instance. So, so valuations, um, one way to look at it is relative to my alternatives. That's the most important way. Where am I going to put my money? Well, if cash returns zero, essentially, and if interest rates are going up, that means bonds are not all that attractive. Tina, there is no alternative. It backs me into the stock market. And that's a lot of why people own and should own uh, large cap U.S. stocks. Now, if we're in a world where interest rates and inflation are higher, that's a bit of a threat to what I've just said. And I think we're heading a bit in that direction. Doesn't mean we're going to have a decade of negative returns, but we could have much lower returns over the next 10 years than we had in the last 10 years. A common uh, you know, Wall Street uh, belief is, is that you know, tech stocks, for instance, which have been the market leaders, that tech doesn't do as well, growth stocks don't do as well as inflation goes up and as interest rates go up. Do you agree with that, that in an inflationary environment where interest rates are ticking up as well, that your typical growth stocks that have been the stars of the last decade won't do as well? Uh, yes, yes, I do, well, okay. all else being equal. A, 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 a high valuation stock, tech, healthcare, is like a bond that has a very long duration or maturity. When interest rates go up, they're the bonds that get hurt the most. Same thing in the stock market. You run uh, these the three different types of approaches in large cap, the core, the growth of value. Which do you think is going to do best uh, as this environment unfolds? So, so I always say to people, if you're only going to own a core, a growth, or a value portfolio, own the core. Because then you own some of everything, and good portfolio managers can tilt a bit one way or the other. If the question is between value and growth over the next couple of years, I'd rather own the value portfolio. For value to do well, the economy needs to be okay, inflation picks up a bit, interest rates go up some. Um, and what we've witnessed this year, you already said it, energy, number one, financials, number two. They're the big weightings in the, in the value indexes, and I don't think that game's over. Give us a couple of the, the, your holdings that, that, that you think are going to do well uh, in, in your value portfolios, for instance. So Goldman Sachs, uh, financial. Um, this has some elements of growth to it, but it's a cheap stock. It benefits from all kinds of trends, an improving economy for sure. Um, as interest rates creep higher, many of the financial stocks uh, do a bit better. And these stocks are selling fairly inexpensively compared to the rest of the market. So Goldman Sachs, among other financials, are important to us. I noticed that the uh, MSCI, which is the company that uh, manufactures or creates all of these 
benchmarks, these market benchmarks, that's another holding of yours as well. Yes, they, they, they benefit from what's going on in the market. That is people analyzing these things, creating products to mimic those things, but they also benefit uh, because as more and more things move in the direction of needing to know how to slice and dice the market, companies like this win. That's in, I think, in both the growth and value, as is Morgan Stanley and uh, as is Oracle. We follow the Russell Index. Uh, the Russell 1000 is our benchmark. Russell 1000 growth for the growth portfolio, Russell 1000 for the value portfolio. Russell organization and their infinite wisdom says about 200 and some of the companies in the Russell 1000 are part growth and part value. So if we like it, we might own it in the growth, the value, and the core portfolio. One of them as well uh, that's in both core and growth, but you just explained why that would be, is Microsoft. Yes. So uh, t tell us you know, why you still own Microsoft. So Microsoft is a big weighting in the index. And so you can own some and still not be, have it your favorite stock. I own Microsoft, but I don't own as much Microsoft as I used to. Uh, I'm not going to get out of Microsoft. I still think it's a wonderful company. Um, it has issues of how big is big, and valuation is not as attractive as it was. So as a result, we own it, but in our growth portfolio, we're underweight our benchmark, um, which is you know important tool for portfolio managers to, to recognize. You want to beat your benchmark. That doesn't mean you have to go to zero. Are you tracking the index? Is that a part of your strategy? We are benchmark conscious investors. Okay. So Our meaning? active share tends to run in the 70s, between 70 and 80. Oh. You know, 90 portfolio kind of ignores the benchmark. Concentrated portfolios, I manage some of those as well. You know, you're trying to pick the best companies and, and you ignore uh, the benchmark uh, per se. But what we're trying to do is beat it by a couple hundred basis points per annum over the course of a cycle. And when you take bets as big as 70 to 80 share, you can do that. Many individuals own stocks because they've got you know, pension funds and they've got their 401ks and IRAs and everything else. And the, their share of stocks, equities, in their total portfolio has gone up a lot because we've had this incredible bull market. What's your advice to investors? Part of what we have to do is step back and make sure you know what is your investment for? What's your time horizon? What's your risk tolerance? Uh, we manage money for some endowments, so let me apply a principle there. If an endowment has a traditional old-fashioned 60 40 60 stocks 40 bonds and they had that a couple years ago that 60 isn't 60 anymore it's 64 65 66 at a minimum i say to those investors trim it back to your 60. take some money off the table take a bow and recognize your money's doubled in the last uh, 18 months uh, and if the market continues to go up i've got 60 percent in the market and if the market corrects oh my goodness thank goodness i take it took a few profits so you know the beauty of the investment business, among others, is it's not black and white. There's shades of gray, and here's a perfect application of that principle. So for individuals, though, for, I mean, let's say in their retirement account, if they are retired or if they're not and they've got, let's say, 10 to 20 years left to run, what, what do we do if we trim our stocks? Where do we put the money? See, the Tina argument, there is no yeah, alternative. Yeah. So, I mean, either other alternatives like private equity and alternative investments like uh, real estate and lumber and even equity market neutral funds. So there are lots of ways you can go in that direction. But if this question is just, or the equation is just stocks, bonds, and cash, it's a tough one. Uh, I say take a little money off the table. 
uh, and on big pullbacks, you can put it back in. I would be careful of the maturity or the duration of my fixed income portfolio, believing interest rates are going to creep higher, which says I have a little cash on the sidelines for a rainy day. Bob, what would your one investment be for a long-term diversified portfolio? So, so mine is a concept, and then I'll, I'll, I'll give a specific. And we've talked around it. What has worked so well in the last decade? Answer, U.S., growth, defensive, um, stable stocks. I think moving the other direction makes sense. I see so many portfolios are just overburdened with the kinds of companies I just mentioned. Have a little more value. Have a little more cyclicality in your portfolio. A few more financials. Typically a large cap value fund that's well managed. So that's my idea. So there's not one stock that would be a core holding that you would recommend that? <laughs> Having one stock as a core holding is the most risky advice. Well, this is a core holding in a broadly diversified portfolio. Yeah, I come back to the Target and the Goldman Sachs, but I need a growth stock in there. So Microsoft's fine. The three we just touched on. All right. So you get a trifecta for us. Yes. We hope. We hope. <laughs> Bob Dahl, so great to see you again. And congratulations on your move to Crossmark. Thank you so much, Consuelo. At the close of every Wealth Track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is align your portfolio with your values, but do it carefully. Socially responsible ESG type of investing is a really hot investing area. Many new players are jumping into the arena. There are no standard definitions of what socially responsible investing means. There are many choices and approaches. Also, some new funds in the category have high fees. Make sure you understand the products you are investing in and the integrity, knowledge, and experience of the people managing them. Well, next week, one of Wall Street's top-rated economists, Nancy Lazar, updates us on her favorite emerging market, Middle America. In this week's extra feature on WealthTrack.com, Bob Dahl discusses how he is aligning his portfolio management duties with his personal beliefs. We hope you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. We so appreciate you spending time with us. Have a great weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one. Thank you.